Well, good morning again. It's great to see you. Thanks for gathering here this morning and for bringing the church into this YMCA gymnasium and to uh, all the dads that are here, including my dad. Uh, Happy Father's Day. I'm really glad that you've chosen to spend your morning uh, with us and excited that we get to continue this series through uh, the great book of Ecclesiastes that helps us wrestle with just the complexities of life and that's just the reality of things. It's not just for uh, the person who doesn't believe in Christ. The reality is even as followers of Jesus, we have to be honest that there's things that sometimes seem sort of like an enigma, things that we think we maybe got figured out and then suddenly we realize like, oh, I didn't quite have a handle on that the way that I thought that I did. And there's this imagery, this language that's used throughout the book of it's all vanity or it's meaningless and it's this idea of a vist or of a a vapor and it's sort of like we reach for it, we try and grab it, we try and contain something and it kind of slips through our fingers. And so there's this teacher in the book that's been uh, helping us sort of explore these themes of what does it look like when we forget like who God is and that he's sovereign, that he's, he's good and how does that result in sort of this meaninglessness under the sun And then also pointing us to the reality of like, oh, there is a God to worship and a God that cares for you and me and everything that you brought in here this morning, the hopes, the the dreams, the aspirations, but also the pain and the sorrow and the complexity and the difficulty, like he wants to meet you in that space. He's inviting you this morning to come and to lay that actually at his feet. It's not that he just wants to work on you somewhere down the road, like he wants to work in and through our time together this morning, that he might do something by the power of his spirit. So that's our prayer this morning that we we might be awakened to what God has for us. And so this morning we're going to be on the first part of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And so if you got a Bible, please turn there. If you did not bring a Bible, there's some paperback ones on the back tables there. And you can turn. It actually will begin, it will be a couple verses on page 619 and then the rest of it's found on page 620. If you don't own a Bible, take one of those home uh, with you. Or, as always, you can go to cpwp.life on your phone, swipe over. The second card says message notes. And what's up on the screen this morning, including the text, will be there. And uh, it's a good way to follow along. So I want to go ahead and just read these 12 verses this morning, and then we'll kind of circle back and begin to explore them really verse by verse and asking this question of, like, okay, what what does it look like to navigate this complex world? world that we inhabit. And so if you would, as I read God's word, would you go ahead and stand? Ecclesiastes chapter 7, I'll be reading the first 12 verses. It says this, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting for this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Verse 7, surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. So be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. This is God's word. You may be seated. 
So I want to ask you this morning, a question we want to sort of explore in this. I don't know if you heard it throughout the text. There's this word that keeps being repeated over and over again by the teacher, by the one who's giving us some instruction, and it's this word better, all right? And there's this contrast that's happening between wisdom and folly and an exploration of what does it look like to live in the better way, or maybe a way to think about it is this, how can you and I live the better way? Life. What would that actually look like? And I believe there's a number of things in this text that'll help us sort of answer that question of like, what is the life that God has for you? That doesn't mean it's gonna go perfectly. It's not like, okay, just embrace these things and you can leave here today as a fully transformed, sanctified, changed person, never gonna have any difficulty. That's not the promise of the scriptures. But there is a call here. What we're gonna look at are kind of five categories of things I think it's calling us to embrace in order to live this or to experience this better life that God would have for us as we live here. Not just someday off in the future, but like right here and right now, what are the things that we're called to embrace? And I want you to pay attention to that word, all right? As we talk about embracing, all right, what we need to see is a full-on embrace. We're not talking about some sort of Christian side hug kind of thing that we need to give to these things, right? We're talking about a full-on embrace of the reality of these are things that the scriptures are telling us like we need to pay attention to, we need to devote ourselves to. It's not to kind of pick and choose and be like, well, maybe I'll do that, maybe not. We do that to our own detriment, and there's some heavy things. I mean, I think you probably heard that even as this chapter began. It's like, wow, I mean, better to go to the house of mourning, right? I mean, it's talking about the realities of death that confront us. I mean, some heavy, heavy things, but we ignore these things to our detriment. So even though they're difficult, let's press into it. And so the first thing that we need to embrace, all right, I think we see it here in these first four verses, is we are called to embrace the reality of sorrow. All right? That doesn't mean you're going to walk around all the time as just this, you know, kind of pouting or just like, you know, grieving person all of the time. But there is a call to embrace sorrow, that it is what we inhabit, what, what happens to us in this world, that Jesus was a man of sorrows, that he was acquainted with grief. But we can't ignore this reality. And so it starts out right away by saying a good name is better than precious ointment. And so it's getting us and it's asking us to consider like what kind of name do you and I have? And by this, what it's getting at is this idea of like, what is the inner life like for you? Is there a depth? Is there a strengthening of the inner being of who you are in Christ? Rather than just paying attention to the externals, there's this call here for to live this better life, to embrace what God has for us, if we're even going to have a good and lasting name, which is something we all would say that we want, there's this call to pay attention to the depths, to not ignore the, these things. It's something I've been thinking about a lot lately, even in the, the reality. I'm 43 years old now, and I've been listening to some things and reading some books, and one of the things that is a theme that keeps coming up is that in general, this is not, you know, 100% always the way that it goes, but in general, one might think of sometimes their, sort of maybe their 20s and 30s of sort of more externally focused, and it's, it's building, all right? You might be building your career or family and different things like that, all right? And that's good. It's good to give energy to that, but there comes this moment that there is this shift a, a bit as well that it's not an inward journey of sort of this narcissistic like, look at me, but there is a, do you now pay attention to what's going on and kind of the depths of who you are and a strengthening and a deepening of that inner work? And I think this is calling, so regardless of age, there's this call to consider what kind of name do you have? What kind of person are you? 
what are you, how do even other people experience you out in the world? And so the writer says this, a good name is better than precious ointment. In the day of death, uh, the day of death than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning. But look at this language, than the house of feasting. This is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Maybe a way to think about this in kind of a strange phrase is don't waste a funeral. Now, let me clarify what I mean by that, all right? This is not for you and I to then go and start scanning the obituaries in the newspaper and be like, I'm gonna go be a funeral crasher and just show up for the punch and cookies that they're serving, right? That is not what we're calling, that would be weird, I don't advise that. But let's also be honest that there's a reality that faces all of us, and sometimes we even end up at a funeral service. That was my reality this past week. As God would have it, I'm literally, I flew to Michigan last Tuesday afternoon to help preach at the funeral service of a, uh, an uncle of mine that passed away in Michigan, all right? And so I'm on the plane ride, I'm trying to study for a sermon this week, happens to be this text, right? I mean, just like, oh, okay, like apparently God wants me to pay attention to those those things, and there's something about being at a funeral as sad as it is, and we need to talk about that and to, to grieve and not move past that. There's also something that God does in revealing to us the brevity of life. There's, a, there's, a, there's an invitation to not just sort of move past it, but to stop and to consider. And so even if you haven't been to a funeral in a while, all right, the reality is this, we need to pay attention to these verses here that talk to us about our lives, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living, it says, will lay it to heart. It means like, do you pay attention to that? Or are you just trying to live as if you'll actually never die, that somehow you're invincible, you're living, you're abiding by kind of a fool's game if you do that? As hard as it is to walk up and to actually look at the casket this, this past week and to do that, there's also something that God uses in that, that moment, not to just keep us in this sort of morbid state, but rather to remind us, oh, that'll be me. That will be me. Um, that will be you. That is the reality of what, what's coming, all right? And that can either stir a lot of fear in us, all right? Or there can be a peace that comes as we know that that's not the end of the story for those of us that are in Christ. But it also has a, a means or a way of kind of putting things into focus for us. And so it tells us, again, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth, where it's just this, it's all about laughter and entertainment and distraction, it is better for a man to hear, and then from there he's going to tell us about how it's better to hear the rebuke of the wise, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But there's this calling here. I f appreciated the, the words of Philip Ryken in his commentary. He says this, today we say our last farewells in church or at a funeral home, but whatever the custom, it is good to have a direct encounter with death. This goes against the prevailing attitude of our culture, which does as much as it can to deny the reality of our mortality. And deny it we do. It is increasingly rare for people to encounter dead bodies or to watch coffins get lowered into the ground or even to mention the word death. The so-called departed, they pass away, are not with us anymore, or go to a better place. Anything except what they actually did, which was to die. I slipped into that just a moment ago. I said, my uncle, he passed away. All right, that's, it seems like a more tame sort of way to talk about it, but the reality is he breathed out his last breath and he died and that's what I'm going to do and that's what you're going to do. And the writer here is telling us in love that God in love is telling us this reality so that we will focus on what is ultimately important. David Gibson in his book, Living Life Backwards, said it this way, building on these themes. The wise person then sits in the funeral home and stares at the coffin and realizes that one day it will be his turn. 
The wise person asks himself, when it is my turn, what will my life have been worth? What will they be saying about me? He loved his bowling and his partying and his holidays. Is that it? Now, there's nothing against bowling or partying or holidays necessarily, but if that's the totality of your life, that somebody gets up and they give the eulogy and they, they talk and they're like, hey, this person just possessed these sort of skills, that's a bit shallow. Like, what about the depth of who we are? God is trying to build into us a depth and a resolve and an inner strength in who we are in Christ. The Spirit is wanting to do something in your heart and in my heart, not just someday down the road, but like right here, right now, as we're in this text This was the psalmist said in Psalm 90, verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Would you be willing to actually pray that prayer, to seek this out? Lord, teach me to number our days. Not that you know the number. God does, all right? But let's pay attention to the days that we've been given. We're called to steward them well. So teach me, teach us to number our days. And in that, so that we might get a heart of wisdom. That as we live this life that we're called to live, we would know that there's important things that are happening. We're not meant to just sort of laugh our way through life. Now, I'm all for jokes and laughter and, and that, and I almost can't help but do that in some situations, all right? But there is this call to make sure that we realize that the seriousness and the weightiness of life and what God invites us into and not to just move past it. So that first thing I think we gotta do is we gotta embrace sorrow. Now, verses five to six tell us that we need to give a full-on embrace to correction at times. Verse five says this, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also, he's saying is vanity, it's meaningless. So embrace correction is the call, that the the foolish laughter is this vanity, but we're called to pay attention, to be involved in community, to have friendships so much so that they might actually speak words of correction into your life and into my life. Proverbs 27 verse 6 says it this way, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. And so we might look and say, oh yeah, no, I take the kisses over the wounds, but the way that things oftentimes work is that God uses the, the wounds of a friend because there's a, there's a redemptive power in it. They're not trying to hurt you or to kick you or to keep you down, but rather they're willing to speak the truth with grace so that there might be, as the writer here talks about, this sort of rebuke or this correction that happens. And our posture as followers of God should be, okay, this is gonna be terrible, this is gonna hurt, this is going to be painful, all right? But rather than a little side hug to it like okay give it to me like a full-on embrace of this we push it aside to our own detriment I push it aside now, I'm not saying this is easy all right this is difficult things to hear but ask yourself do you welcome the rebuke or the correction of people that know you well do you have people in your life that that know you well and the imagery that he uses here says first the crackling of thorns under a pot so is the laughter of the fools this also is is vanity and sort of the imagery that it's getting at is of a of a fire that is going and you've got the pot that's up there that, that's cooking and you've got the thorns and the, the twigs and the stuff that's gonna burn up very, very quickly, all right? And it makes this sort of crackling that maybe corresponds to a cackling, so to speak, of those that are, that are laughing. It's a it's something that gives off a good bit of heat. It kind of flares up initially, but it's not long lasting. And this is what it looks like to just be all the time sort of laughing, just giving ourselves to just the entertainment and the distractions that exist. 
And if anyone should be paying attention to this, it's us, right, where millions and millions of people fly to our city every year, all right? This is not necessarily a bad thing, but there is, there is an entertainment vibe and culture and things that it's not difficult to sort of get sucked into and realize, oh, oh, oh that's not the real world. And so we can distract ourselves with all these sort of things that vie for our attention. And it says it's like this crackling of thorns under a pot. It's good to laugh. It's good to, to have the, those times. It's good to not always be, be serious, all right? And yet, if that's all your life is characterized by, if there's never difficult conversations, it's not actually a good thing. The imagery there, again, is something that it sort of burns up quickly. It's impressive at first glance. All right, remember hearing that dried out Christmas trees like could catch on fire, that's very dangerous if they're in the home. Um, not being very smart, I decided to take our Christmas tree out at our old house on our back kind of patio basketball court area. Uh, we had a six foot fence and there was a the bike trail that's behind our, our house. And I thought, eh, it's still in the stand. Let's see how flammable this thing is, all right? And so I lit it on fire. Um, and uh, it's true, when that dried out Christmas tree, um, just so you know, all right? Um, but man, the amount of heat, it literally, it was, there were flames shooting up over the top of the backboard of the basketball hoop. I literally, there were people, they must have, they're either walking or biking or rollerblading or something behind the, the fence on the trail. And I hear this, are you okay over there, right? Um, and, uh, and I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm just an idiot, idiot you know. And so um, the things just flamed. Now, within about 30 seconds, it was gone. It was this impressive, all right? And that's what the writer's getting at, this imagery here of like, okay, that can be fun and entertaining and interesting, but we need something that would last. And so ask yourself, look, what kind of community are you keeping? What kind of friends do you have? Is it all about the, the mirth, the entertainment, just the laughter and being jovial all the time, all right? Or is there actually some depth to it? Do you actually have friends that might rebuke that, the writer of Proverbs would speak about, even a wounding that would, that would take place. What kind of friends do you have? This is something that we need to embrace. So if we're going to live the life that is better, meaning the life that God has for us, or we embrace sorrow, we realize that's part of this world, we would embrace correction. And I think what we also see here, look at me, with me at verses 7 to 9, that there's an embracing of this work that God is doing, this embracing of a, of a process. We want things, or I know I do, instantly, right? Sort of this kind of microwave mentality of like, okay, and even with that, like I had to put something in the microwave the other day. I was like, three minutes? How, this takes three minutes? I was like all frustrated by it, right? Like, just calm down. Three minutes is not that long a time. And so embrace that there's a process of how God is at work. That it's not this super highway all the time. That it's a winding dirt path. And sometimes we're going at like a, you know, kind of a crawling pace. But there's this process. God is doing a work in your life and in my life. There's twists and turns, there's all kinds of different things, but know this, that he is in charge of the process and that he is at work. And so verses seven to nine, I think, even though they, at first glance they might seem unrelated, I think they all get at this idea, all right? It's gonna talk here for a moment about bribes, impatience, and anger. And I think if we really see this, maybe a way to think about it is they're all sort of attempts at just, can, can I just short, can I take the shortcut? What's the easiest route? Can I just kind of barrel my way through, all right? And so look with me at verse seven. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. And be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. And so as we look at this right away, they're speaking against a shortcut that for somebody that you're, maybe you're trying to live with, with wisdom, you want to honor God, but then something comes up where it, it offers you 
hey, there's, there's a bribe, there's an opportunity to sort of like go a different route, a way that you wouldn't maintain your integrity, but you're wondering like, well, anybody actually know? Maybe it's not that big of a deal, or everybody in the company is doing this, whatever it happens to be, everybody in your school is doing this, and so there's this opportunity that comes up, but really it's detrimental to your soul. It doesn't honor God, but there's the temptation for a shortcut. Rather than embracing the process, as difficult as it might be, it's like, ah, I'm going to short-circuit this. I'm going to take the shortcut. I'm going to do what I want to do. It seems like the path of least resistance. And there's this talk of just impatience overall in verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. Do you really believe that? It's hard to believe that sometimes when you're in the middle of the painful process. But there's this promise that we get, and it's not just in the book of Ecclesiastes, but from the very beginning to the end, as you read it, it's a work of God's unfolding plan, his redemptive story about how he's at work and bringing about the fulfillment and the renewal of all things. And we get to be a part of it, but because we're part of it, not only do we get to be used, it also means that God is going to do things in your life that are are unexpected or you and I would never choose on our own, but they're part of the process. And the promise is that the end of things will be better than its beginning. And so the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. The proud in spirit is like, I know best, God. This wasn't supposed to happen to me. This is my plan. This is how I laid it out. Here's what I'm going to do. And there's an arrogance in that because I think that I know best. And God is like, whoa, just simmer down, buddy. Like, calm down. Your call is to be patient. Your call is to trust. And so this impatience and this pride when it kicks in, again, it's sort of like a shortcut because it's like, no, I want to do what I want to do. I'm not willing to wait on God. I'm not willing to be patient in this process. I've got to go. There are things that need to happen. God's timing can't be perfect. Like, in fact, I got to, you know, catch God up here and I got to work overtime. And so then what does it lead to? It leads to anxiousness and burnout and busyness and you can't rest and you can't sleep and you never Sabbath. You view Sabbath as optional. You should embrace it. I should embrace it. And yet we oftentimes don't. We fail to see that it's actually a gift where it confronts us that, hey, listen, you're not in charge. The world kept spinning if you took a moment to rest. It's how things go. God has designed the world in such a way, but we get impatient. And then it talks about verse 9, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. And that imagery there is so powerful. It lodges in the heart of fools. Oh, what a fool I am where I allow anger to get lodged. Because I think that, hey, I can just kind of give into this. And what's happening is it's further kind of burrowing in. It's, it's getting stuck. It's lodged there. And there is righteous anger and righteous frustration. But, man, there is unrighteous anger and frustration that I know that I possess. And it's lodging there. And it's telling me in that moment, like, hey, I think if I just get angry and like kind of push through something, again, it's a shortcut. It's not asking, God, what do you have for me in this? It's not being patient. It's like, I'm just going to go ahead. And there's an arrogance and there's a pride to it. I don't know if you follow this. I'm a huge uh, NBA uh, and just basketball fan in general. Um, And so one of the storylines over the past few years, if you follow this, and if you don't, you'll probably be able to track with this, is that after the 2012-2013 season, there was a team called the Philadelphia 76ers, and they began what became known as the process, all right, um, as their general manager, a guy by the name of Sam Hinkie, began to dismantle the team. Any sort of talent that they had, he began trading away and just stockpiling, all right, um, draft picks 
analytics and things and just they had some of the like the lowest payroll in the NBA and it was a several year process of tanking that they could get as bad as possible in order to get high draft picks in order to acquire it's like anybody that was halfway decent like they almost signed me one day right that's how bad it was going to get right and so they had these I'm kidding, just in case you're wondering. Okay, but um, they had this plan that the general manager put in place that became known as the process. Like, got, it's going to get bad, but eventually it's going to get there. Now, it's not fully there. If you're a 76ers fan, they would, they would tell you, like, hey, but they have made progress. And what resulted, they were, like, you know, one shot away from potentially playing in the Eastern Conference Finals th- this year. And even their star player, Joel Embiid, has sort of taken on that, that name by referring to himself as the process. All right? So now it's just embodied in one man. I don't know if that quite is what they were going for. But it's this idea of just sort of trusting. All right? And there was this patience that was required by the fan base of that particular city, and some liked it and some hated it, right? But it was this ongoing work. That's kind of a silly example just from the sports world, but it is appropriate in the way that the scriptures actually talk about this work, this process, the way the scriptures talk about this progressive sanctification Meaning, so you're justified. If you're a Christian, like you are viewed with the righteousness and the holiness of King Jesus. And yet, there's also this tension because you know you don't fully live that out. And I don't fully live that out. And so there's this work of the Spirit to remind us of our justification. And out of that, all right, it leads to this sanctification through the power of the Spirit, through the gospel. All right, we get those things flipped all the time, and we think our justification is based on our sanctification. How well I'm living, how obedient I am, that makes me justified. No, 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 no. That is not how the scriptures speak of it. The process is always, no, you're justified. You have been set free. You are a son of the king. You have the inheritance. You have this new identity, a new name. You're a new creation. And then out of that, though, God is doing this work of sanctifying you. There's this process. And the wise person, the writer of Ecclesiastes, kind of like embraces that. Paul would pick up on these themes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. It says, therefore, my beloved, he's speaking to those that are in the church. They're not just Paul's beloved, the beloved of God, that they're in Christ Jesus, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. So there's that idea of like, work it out. There's a process with fear and a trembling. But remember this, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure that the pleasure of God is tied to listen he has set things up in such a way that there is going to be this process and that the end is going to be better than the beginning and to be faithful Eugene Peterson talks about the reality of a long obedience in the same direction we can start out with all sort of fanfare and enthusiasm and excitement and fireworks but at the end of the day it's what happens at the end that actually matters and so ultimately what are you pursuing are you growing in grace are you growing in holiness you're not saving yourself but you're further working out the implications of like okay i'm justified now i can live in a whole new way i don't have anything to prove but you're finding this joy in obeying god just the chapter before paul said this in philippians 1 is opening words and i'm sure of this it's like i've got complete confidence that he who began a good work in you god is the one that did it 
you and I can't pat ourselves on the back or we began this good work and so we just need a little bit of Jesus sprinkled in to, to get all the way. No, 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 like we're dead in our trespasses and sins. He had to give us a new heart. He had to breathe life into us. He had to regenerate us. All of these things, it's all God. He's the active agent. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Not might, not if everything happens to line up. He will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's at work in your life. Be encouraged in that. But it is a process. It is difficult. There are no shortcuts. I want the shortcut, all right? I want, hey, just give me the, the secret insight. Give me the code to get to this next level, whatever it happens to be. But he's telling you, no, be patient. Don't have this unrighteous anger. Be faithful in where God, like what God is doing. Trust him in that. He'll bring it to completion. And know this, Paul's writing the, these words while imprisoned. He's not writing this from, you know, just some sort of cushy little, you know, living room where he's just kind of kicking back. I mean, he's like, no, this is hard. It's difficult. Things don't always go according to what our plans are, but trust that God is at work. And so I think in this, there's a call that we've got to embrace sorrow. We've got to embrace correction. We've also got to embrace the fact that it's a process. I want it quick. I want it speedy. And God is saying, well, no, no, slow down. And God sees the end. He sees what it's going to take to get you to be made more and more into the image and likeness of his son. And then verse 10, I think there's this invitation to embrace the future. It says this, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Let me read that one more time. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. How many of us, if we're honest, would be guilty of uttering these words, thinking these words, reflecting back, maybe in a moment of frustration, of something that's not going well, and just like, ah, oh, if we could just go back to this time period in, in life or this particular place or when you had this, all right? Now, we can be thankful for the, those things, but we also have this tendency to over-romanticize them. I love the words of Warren Wearsby in his commentary on Ecclesiastes. He says this, It has been said that the good old days are the combination of a bad memory and a good imagination. And often this is true. Right? Combination of a bad memory and a good imagination. Very true. I told you, I was up in Michigan this past week. I'm literally I'm on the phone with Heather. And I'm walking. Uh, one night we were just kind of you know, we catching up. And she's asking how things were going. And as I'm walking this neighborhood of the family that we were, we were staying with, and I, I go up this hill, and then suddenly there's just like there's just like this park and the swing set, and then there's this just beautiful open field of freshly mowed northern grass, people, is what I'm talking about, all right? Not this stuff in Florida that'll make your feet bleed, but like real grass, right? And so like walking out there, and I'm on, I'm on the phone with her, and I'm talking, and then I'm just like reminiscing. I'm like, it is so beautiful. I, I just love the Midwest in the summer, and I'm walking down the street. There's this kid, and he's shooting hoops, all right? And I'm just like, man, front yard, everybody in the middle, they got the basketball hoop out, the kid's playing, right? He's got a beautiful jump shot. Nobody has a good jump shot down in Florida, right? Like this is where my mind set is going. I'm literally having this conversation. It's all just sort of nostalgia in the moment, right? Just looking at, at these things. Now, there is some little bit of truth in some of that, and yet it's a combination of a bad memory and a good imagination. We tend to remember things and just we're like, oh, this was ideal, so amazing, Right? And so be thankful for the things that you've had in the past. But as you look at what you have right now, I would say it's an embracing of the present, yes, but also paying attention to that these longings are meant to point you to the deeper reality of what you're invited into. 
And even as you think back on like, hey, embrace the reality, maybe embrace rebuke or correction. And what kind of friends do you have, all right? I think our great tendency, this is just sort of an aside here, all right? But there can be this tendency, I think, even to, to look back sort of nostalgically at different periods of time, right? Like, I have great, great memories of my friends in, in college. And if I walk around right now, like, man, I wish, it, you know, we just don't have that sort of community. Like, we all lived, re- like, within, like, two doors of each other. We shared a bathroom, which was disgusting, right? Um, and we were just around each other all the time. Oh, yeah, and we all played basketball together on the team, so we literally couldn't escape. No wonder there was sort of a connection that happened because it was just like we're around each other all the time great celebrate that enjoy that but also realize that there's things that God's inviting us into like right now so maybe a way to think about it is this I thought this was really helpful I want to read to you a C.S. Lewis quote here in a moment where he unpacks this theme but nostalgia all right which this verse is kind of saying hey that doesn't come from God like that is not a thing that he wants you to live in the past and continue to look back isn't really even ultimately about the past So I wondered in this to call it, yeah, should it be embrace the present? And we can talk about that, and I think there is a a calling to that. We've We've seen that in the book of Ecclesiastes where he tells us just like, hey, enjoy friendship and enjoy a good meal, enjoy drink and and do that. Like there's some things that just see them as gifts that the Lord has given you. Do your work, your toil. Um, But I think there's something deeper that's going on. That it's not just even about embracing the present, but it's ultimately about embracing the future that God has for you, to pay attention that when that nostalgia kicks in, it's meant to point you to something deeper. So C.S. Lewis talked about this in, this, in his book, this uh, really sort of this speech sermon of sorts that he gave called The Weight of Glory. And pay attention to these, these words, the way that he described this. It's the, the context is one kind of looking back and reminiscing about like, a, like a, a, a work of literature or music or whatever it happened to be. He says, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located, will betray us if we trust to them. For it was not in them, it only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a far country we have not yet visited. And so when those feelings kick in and there's that, that moment of like, oh, if we could just go back to sort of the good old days. The good old days weren't really all that good. But with that what that feeling is, that emotion that, that's there is meant to say, ah, but in that moment, yeah, you did experience something. And what you're even experiencing now is meant to point you, maybe to help you ask the question, like, are you paying attention to your longings? That there's a country you haven't visited. There's a song that you've only heard kind of a faint echo of. And one day you will actually be singing with the chorus that is the saints as God gathers his people and there's the new heavens and the new earth and that faraway land will become your reality and there'll be no more sorrow and there'll be no more shame there'll be no more brokenness there'll be no more disease there'll be no more loss that everything is God originally intended to be and so when we have these feelings it should lead us to say Lord like come Lord Jesus like we want you to come back we want you to set everything right and not to just sort of drift into this like oh I wish things could be like they they once were but rather to trust that, hey, there's this process and there's this future that God has for you. And as Paul would even tell us in a very combative way, if you really think about it, like this, uh, this, these present afflictions that he, he talks about, all right, 
he's, he begins to use the, this language, this, this weight of glory, like are, are gonna just, you won't even hardly remember them. No matter how painful, how much brokenness, he's saying what is coming for you outweighs them all. And so trust him in that. And as it concludes, then it drives us to this point at verses 11 to 12, where there is this kind of summary call that, hey, so let's not embrace folly, but let's embrace wisdom. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. Just kind of very practically, like the writer here, the teacher here is like, hey, there are some things you're going to need in life and to have an inheritance or to have some money and to have pair that with wisdom. Like, hey, that's a good thing. You shouldn't knock that. You shouldn't be trying to get rid of that. Verse 12, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, that there is some protection that comes from it. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Okay, that's good. But what we've been seeing throughout this book is like, okay, but is that actually enough? And this is where we need to conclude with and we need to wrestle with together. Is this sort of wisdom that he's espousing and the money that he's saying it might be helpful in life, are those things enough? And if you've been with us through the book of Ecclesiastes, all right, even whether it be just for this morning or any of the previous weeks, you're probably picking up on this theme that these things in and of themselves, they are not enough. They're meant to point us to something deeper and truer, something better, that there's a better country that you were made for, that you're a citizen. Like there's this idea of you're sort of passing through and one day you're going to be home. And so is wisdom enough? So I want to conclude with this and as we wrestle through that question to look at how God thinks of what is foolish and how God thinks of what is wise. And the Apostle Paul wants to unpack this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'll read verses 20 to 25. He begins to ask these questions. And he's, he's writing to this group of people and he's like, hey, where is the one who is wise? And he's talking about sort of like a worldly wisdom. He's not knocking that necessarily, but he's, he's also saying, but there's something deeper and truer. And the way that God works is there's a mystery to it, and there's a call to embrace. He says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Let me read those last lines one more time. For since in the wisdom of God, as God determined it to be, the world did not know God through wisdom, through their own, their own attempts at it to try and figure it out, to try and get to God, to have this right relationship, this right communion, this restoration. So they didn't know it through wisdom. It pleased God that through the folly of what we preach to actually save, to rescue, to redeem those who believe. So what is the folly that Paul is talking about here? He says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Think about that, the power of God. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. That wisdom showed up in flesh and blood in the person and work of Jesus. That the incarnation, that he was born into this, this world of brokenness and of sin, but was never tainted by it, perfect obedience, lived the life I should have lived, that you should have lived, all right? And goes to a Roman cross. And what we now preach is that Christ was crucified in your place and in my place, dying the death that you deserve and that I deserve. And it's telling us, 
for anyone who hears that, it's like, that's ridiculous. That's ludicrous. How does that even work? Why would that even happen? Why would God have that happen to his son? It just seems utterly foolish. And yet it's the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than many. Paul is telling us it's all upside down. It's all counterintuitive. That the way that we think we're going to be saved, that the enemy looked at the cross and thought, oh, I've defeated him. Finally, I tried to tempt him out in the wilderness. I tried to lay these things before him, and he didn't give into it. But now I have secured victory. He looked at the cross and thought he was one. One, except when you go and read Colossians 2, and it tells us that through the cross that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities, that he made a spectacle of them, like they're being dragged in behind this victory line and Jesus is saying, "Uh uh-huh, you thought you won. No, 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 I rose again three days later. Now the cross is what we glory in because Jesus has achieved redemption and restoration for his people. Didn't make any sense on the surface. This is how our God works. And as you think about the call to embrace these things and the things that even seem upside down or counterintuitive or how in the world is the, the end gonna be better than the beginning and why can't we just go back to how things were or why is there this sorrow or why this rebuke or why this process? Why, 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 why? Ask the questions and yet have a confidence that our God is at work, that he could use the death of his own son to bring about redemption and restoration of all things. He can use what's going on in your life and in my life. And so in this call, in this sort of upside down way, really it's this invitation like, hey, will you and I embrace foolishness? Not our own foolishness, but what is laid out here in 1 Corinthians chapter one is sort of this, this foolishness of the gospel. When you understand what Jesus did through the cross, then it tells us that our calling is to take up our cross and to follow him. The world says the wisdom, the wise way to live, what you need to live for is you gotta get yours, you gotta make the story about you and the Christian story, the gospel, the better story, the better life is no, you die to self and you take up your cross and you follow Jesus and you engage in this working out of your salvation, this progressive sanctification where God is making you into something more holy, that God is at work and that's gonna look like foolishness and it's gonna feel like foolishness to you at times. Because you're going to be like the dominant cultural narrative. You're going against the grain of that. You're going to wonder if you're crazy. And you're going to need people to surround you and tell you in those times, like, no, keep pressing on. Keep moving forward. No, you gave into this too much. No, you're not believing the gospel. Here's what it is together. And you get to be that for other people. And it's going to look and appear like foolishness. When people are like, why are you giving your time to be here? Why are you going to this Bible study? Or why are you meeting with this small group of people? Or why do you seem to, to pray to God? Or why do these things, you know, what, this general disposition that you have might not make sense to them. But there's this foolishness that we're invited into. So I want to close in prayer and just give us a moment here to respond and encourage you. In what ways maybe do you need to repent of ways you've been living according to folly and to this foolishness of the world giving into those narratives. I want you to remember what you and I are invited into, this, this better story, this truer story, that God is at work to embrace that. And then I'll give us some instruction in a moment how we're gonna rejoice. We're gonna rejoice together as the body of Christ, giving him praise for what he's done. But let me go ahead and just pray for a moment, give you some space to think and pray. Father, thank you for this word that you've given to us. It's a difficult word. It's, it's things we don't want to dwell on. To think about sorrow and mourning. It's just not what we're accustomed to. We're not very good at it. We want to just move past it. Even our language reflects that at times. 
We thank you that in love, God, you had us to be here this morning and in this text to hear these verses, to hear your word. And so, Spirit, I ask that you would take the truths and that you would apply them, that you would speak specifically to each one of us here, that you might lead us in repentance, and that you might remind us again of the truth of the gospel, the better story. May we be a people that rejoice in that for your glory and for our joy. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.